the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Swamp creatures only, please. <laughs> Carrie Lake was a news anchor in Phoenix, uh, decided to run for governor. She supported and was endorsed uh, by Donald Trump. She lost a close one. It was one of those elections that looked like it yeah, might have been rigged. So Kerry decided to run for the Senate. But she found out Republicans in Washington didn't want a non-swamp creature in the Senate. Jeff DeWitt, who's the chairman of the Arizona Republican Party, told her so. He tried to pay her not to run, and Kerry recorded the conversation. Is there a number at which... I can be bought. <laughs> what it's about. You can take a pause for a couple years. No. And then go right back to what you're doing. Mm-mm. No. 10 million, 20 million, 30, no, no, no. A billion, no. This is not about money. This is about our country. I think it's disturbing that they would even, that anybody would think this is. I, I, no, to be fair, even me, even me, I'll say this. I want a fresh face right now for the reason that I've never seen anyone. I can't think of a single person in a federal race who's lost, ran in and won. I can't think of it. If you can think of it, let me know. I'm not going to let these people who hate our country tell me not to run. You should call them and tell them to get behind me. So what's going on? What is, uh, I'm assuming this is our friend. Uh, this is, this is, this is back east. They... There are very powerful people that want to keep you out. I know they do. But they're willing to put their money where their mouth is in a big way. Yeah. And he goes on to talk about how the people back east had companies that were willing to put her on their payroll for two years to do nothing. They obviously hate her for the same reasons that uh, they hate Trump. She's not a member of the club or a, a resident of the swamp and just might ask too many questions. I'll be interested to see how uh, the media pick up on this, if at all. I think it's a pretty big deal. Anyway, speaking of the swamp, in our second half hour, we're going to hear from a former CIA operative who's written a book called Big Intel, how the CIA and FBI went from Cold War heroes to deep state villains. This guy's been on the inside. He's got some scary stuff to say. And then when we come back after the break, Adam Angievsky of OpenTheBooks.com to tell you how the government is spending your money to take care of the illegal immigrants after they come across our borders illegally. Stick around. Exit polling in New Hampshire last night showed that immigration was the number one issue among voters. Uh, There's a standoff on the Texas border between the feds and the state of Texas you might have heard of. Uh, So this issue isn't going away. And wait until you hear how much all of this illegal immigration is costing the federal government. Adam Angievsky is the CEO of OpenTheBooks.com. 
com, and he's just the person to talk to about this, and he joins us now. Adam, thanks for coming on again. Well, hey, John. Thanks for having me here. It's great to be back. So uh, how much of our money has been spent on illegal immigrants? I'm not, and I'm not, I guess I'm not talking about keeping them out. <laughs> no, it's $20 billion to keep them in. This yeah, is refugee yeah. care just in the past two years. So these are the latest and hottest numbers from 2022 and 2023. And um, it's up $2 billion year over year for a grand total of $20 billion. That's our money, John, you and I. And it funds a whole suite of very lucrative benefits. And again, this is this is not money spent to protect the border and keep illegal immigrants from illegally immigrating. This is after they've already come across the border illegally. Yeah, and they're basically, you know, branding everybody that comes across. They're giving them refugee status. Right. And so, you know, the left has learned over the course of the last couple of decades, after crisis after crisis on the border, they fine-tune their craft. And so basically everybody's being led into the country on an asylum refugee basis. Uh, so everything is absolutely overwhelmed. There's a crush on the border, on the southern border. It's an all-time high in illegal entrance at the border, and this has created all-time surge in taxpayer costs. So it costs a lot of money to transport 2.5 million people all over the country. Who knew? Yeah, I mean, isn't that incredible? 2.5 million. That is more population than the city of Chicago this year crashed through the southern border. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's more uh, people than live in this whole metropolitan area of uh, Pittsburgh, you know, western PA, 2.5 million. I think it's... That's about, I think it's about 2 million here. So that's like the entire population of uh, this within 50 miles of where I'm sitting right now, um, just coming across the border illegally. So think about this. So everybody in the metro area that you just described locally, what if taxpayers provided for them, every single one of them, emergency housing support, work Mm -hmm. authorization, public benefits application for a whole suite of benefits there, medical screening, school enrollment, referrals to employment programs, cultural orientation, mental health referrals, legal assistance for the whole Pittsburgh metropolitan area. That's what we're doing. Wow. Now, and and you have this document. This is not stuff that you're making up. This is come from the government's own records, right? Yeah, it comes right out of the federal budget. Just no one pays any attention to these things. And so what our auditors did is we combed through the federal budget and we looked within health and human services. So this is not at Border Patrol. This is not in the law enforcement agencies. This is through our, our, our vast social soft, what's supposed to be a soft social safety net. And it looks like we're hanging a hammock for everybody crossing the border. <laughs> well, um, and uh, most of these people are coming from Mexico, correct? Well, uh, about one out of every three, the nation of origin is Mexico. But then throughout Central and Southern uh, Americas, you've got basically the rest of the people. There was only less, there was a little less than 400,000 out of 2.5 million last year that didn't come from either the Caribbean or Central or Southern uh, America or Mexico. So most of them come right through that southern border. Only a very small fraction uh, of entrants are not from the Americas or the Caribbean. Well, you ran down that list pretty quickly here about what they get and what we're spending the money on. 
could you kind of go into what what are some of the things that these uh, so-called refugees get from the twenty billion? Could you run that bias again slowly? <laughs> yeah. Uh, look, emergency housing support. You know, work authorization applications. Let's, this let, is going to put a. Let's excuse me, but let's stop with the housing. What does that mean? <laughs> housing support. That sounds like a place to live. Yeah, I mean it varies, right? So you've got uh, you've got millions of dollars in some markets for you know sixty or a hundred families that are authorized. Uh, you've got you know cities like Chicago, you know, like the African American community in Chicago is suing the city because you know they're getting housing support, something that they've asked for for decades and they never got. But if you crash the southern border, you're getting it, mm-hmm. and so so. I don't have a lot of detail in my notes here on the emergency housing support, but those are some of the those are some of the headlines from around the country. Yeah, I, I mean, just the idea that um, the people come across the border and our tax dollars illegally, our our, our tax dollars are being used to put them up. Yeah, and look, it's a quandary, right? Because, you know, over the holidays, my family and I, we spent a couple of nights in downtown Chicago at a nice hotel. And when we went out for dinner at night, you know, it was zero degrees. It was really cold. And you have, without winter coats, wrapped in blankets, you've got families of migrants in on the Magnificent Mile in Chicago, wrapped in blankets, and even babies. So, you know, Biden's border crisis has led to just absolute inhumanity on the streets and some of the wealthiest neighborhoods in our country. And it's a, it's led to a moral crisis. And um, so what about the stories we hear about illegal immigrants getting a cell phone and a debit card? With- yeah, well, that's part of the suite of benefits on the public benefits application. So they, you know, the migrants get, get help filling that out. And then, you know, then, then it rains. The whole suite of public benefits is open to them. So they get they actually are handed phones. When yes. They... Yeah, I've done oversight of that program in the past. They are handed phones, um, and and that's a part of the public benefit package. Well, if you have a phone, there has to be a phone bill. <laughs> uh, yeah, you're you and I are picking that up, John. Yeah. So <laughs> so how do they, how does that get paid? You know how it's paid. No, but paid I mean, by, I, I'm, I'm, I'm by trying, the American taxpayer. Yeah, I'm trying to. I know that this isn't necessarily <laughs> your department, but I, I'm trying to imagine how I, I come across the border, um, and someone hands me a phone, and I use it, and then at the end of the month, if it's like any other phone, there's a bill, and I don't have any money, so. And you probably don't have a permanent address. No, so who's paying the bill? How, how's it getting paid? So it's paid for by taxpayers, but it gets even worse. So a year ago, we did oversight on this program. There are tens of thousands of these cell phones paid for by taxpayers that have already been turned on while these phones are being stored. We're all paying a monthly bill for phones that are still in storage lockers. Oh, but again... I come across the border from, and I came here from Honduras, and now I've been put on a bus, and I'm in, I'm living in uh, on a, you know, in an airport somewhere in Chicago, at O'Hare Airport or something, and I have this phone. Who do I go to to get the to get the bill paid? Do I call up my the, the local congressman and say, "Listen, I got my, my Verizon bill today. 
It just makes no sense. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think the migrants are getting the bill. Um, that yeah. bill is 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 billed off to the federal agency, which has the contract, and that's how it's paid. Nice deal if you can get it. Yeah. Yeah. Really nice. I mean, my phone uh, right here in Hinsdale through Hinsdale, Illinois. It's a you know one of the wealthiest zip codes in the country. Most of the time, it doesn't work. Like this radio interview we have to do on my landline, and I have to keep the landline because the phone doesn't work. But the migrants get a phone that works. <laughs> That's nice. So I also see, and we're talking to Adam Angievsky, CEO and founder of uh, OpenTheBooks.com. I see that you've also uncovered the inevitable conflicts of interests uh, with private citizens uh, apparently ending up with a chunk of this money. Yeah, so there's a new director um, at the agency, the Office of Refugee Resettlement, that handles these massive grants. The budget of this agency has gone through the roof in the last two years, and she has a massive conflict of interest. John, she comes actually out of two out of the top five largest grant recipients in her agency. So she's a former executive at two of the agencies, International Rescue, uh, International Rescue Committee and Church World Services. Combined, those two entities have received over $300 million since 2013 from her own agency and an international rescue committee where she spent off and on over the course of the past two decades. While she's been the director, supposedly recusing herself from decisions, their funding from her agency is up year over year by nearly $100 million. $100 million. Yeah. Now, so, look, so Congress is, needs to crack down. I mean, you got a director that actually comes out of the industry, which begs the question, has the industry captured the agency? So, yeah, that's so what's the conflict here? She's uh, uh, the head of a nonprofit. Sometimes people think that the people who are running nonprofits do it for free. <laughs> they don't. They get they get nice <laughs> no. big salaries. Um, and some of the nonprofit profits uh, go to them so they can have a really nice living. So this woman Well well this is a this is a big nonprofit. It's called International Rescue Committee. Now we did take a look at how much their CEO makes per year. Mm-hmm. And he makes over one million dollars nice. a year. That's nice. So you're exactly right, John. So you know, we, we think that nonprofits are all about public service, but this guy he's public service with a million dollar price tag. I get the feeling that you you uh, look into this stuff all the time and you're you you have to I'm sure you're always um bumping into nonprofits and what's going on with them. Um, it seems like that's a pretty good industry to get into if you want to make a good buck. <laughs> well, not if you're a nonprofit at OpenTheBooks.com. That's our organization. Ah, okay. Uh, look, we don't take government money, right? Not mm-hmm. one single dime. We didn't even take any money during the COVID pandemic. None of the government bailouts that would have compromised our mission. We do not take taxpayer money, period. Now, how much of this money that we're talking about here ends up being spent on child trafficking? Well, those those budgets have exploded. Uh, so the number, just in the past two years, the number of uh, uh, minors, unaccompanied minors, through the southern border is 260,000, which rivals the population of Honolulu, Hawaii. Now... About 85,000 of those, according to the New York Times, they've lost track of, quote-unquote, the agency that we're talking about, Office of Refugee Resettlement, has lost track of 85,000 
of these children, now, these unaccompanied minors. Now, again, is this a, a government or, or a, a, a private agency that does this? So this is the government agency, the Office of okay. Refugee Resettlement. Okay. It's run by that Robin Dunn Marcos, the same mm. one that has the conflict from the industry. <laughs> and she's in a congressional hearing last last spring. And she's asked about the about the New York Times investigation of the 85,000 children that the agency, her agency can't find. And she would not confirm the number. She would not say that there's a problem with the sponsor vetting process. But she didn't know the reject rate for sponsorship applications. So in other words, nobody's watching the store and 85,000 children are quote unquote lost in the system. Well, the sponsors um, are sometimes, uh, uh, these, the sponsors are supposed to be in the United States, correct? This is who's going to take care of them when they get here? Is that right? Yeah. So there's a there's a sponsoring entity, you mm-hmm. know, a guardian or yeah. uh, a family member or somebody that steps up for the child. And then they're supposed to check in, you know, every 30 days. But when the agency calls them, the calls go unreturned. And so they don't know where in the country these kids are. So they're not answering the cell phones they've been given. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Hey, I got my new. I got a free cell phone here. Whoops! I see it's the government calling me. I'm not answering that. Um, exactly. So uh, we've all seen what's happening on the southern border, but what about refugees coming from Ukraine, for example? How much are they costing us? Well, they they cost a lot of money. So all the foreign policy failures, like Afghanistan, Ukraine, this costs the American taxpayer a lot of money. Uh, I, the uh, uh, for example, it's about $3 billion a year just for Afghanistan. Okay, now we had a lot of allies there, and when, when Biden's hasty withdrawal, rather than leave these people stranded to certain death yep. and execution, we bailed them out of there. Okay, so, you know, it is what it is. Um, and, in, for instance, on Ukraine refugees, it's almost a billion dollars a year. Um, as a matter of fact, in uh, in 2022, it was $900 million. And then this year in 2023, it's nearly two billion this year. So Ukraine's coming with a significant billion-dollar price tag as well. So we hear about the money spent uh, on the, the money that we send to Ukraine for the war, but this almost matches it. Yeah, seriously. I mean, uh, I don't know if uh, spending on Ukraine refugees ma- uh, matches what we're sending over there, which is probably north of a hundred billion dollars at this point uh, to Ukraine, but. Um, it does come with a significant taxpayer cost. For example, uh, if you took a look at the 50 states and the federal aid into the state governments at $3 billion a year, that would probably, I'm just doing some quick math in my head, outrank 15, 16 state governments on what Congress provides them for aid. So we're talking a massive amount of money. Uh, what's the preferred communities program? So the Preferred Communities Program is uh, an area where um, you've got all these nonprofits, um, for instance, like the United States uh, Conference of Catholic Bishops. Mm -hmm. You've got the Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service. You've got the World, the uh, Church World Service. You've got the U.S. Committee for Refugees and Immigrants, the Ethiopian Committee for Development Council. And, And so those are the folks that last year got a half billion dollars. You've got um, these nonprofits who are making big profits off the immigration crisis. So that those 
organizations are getting big chunks of money, and what's it supposed to be going for? So that those are the organizations that dole out the program benefits. Everything we were talking about earlier, All like your emergency housing yeah, support, yeah, yeah. your work authorization of public benefits, medical screening, school enrollment. Those are the organizations that match the migrants up with the social welfare system. Well, Adam, I'm out of time, but real quick, uh, anything going to be done about this? What are you? What are you? Uh, are you uh, yeah, going the, to annoy I mean, somebody the, about this? It's. You know, thanks to you, John, a lot of other good media out there, we're, we're, you know, this has been big news. It is the number one issue on people's minds. Mm-hmm. The voter uh, exit polls from New Hampshire, as you mentioned, confirm that. Um, it's a, you know, this is the issue going into the 2024 elections. Yeah. Well, um, I'm sure we'll have you back on, and uh, we could have you on every day. You could probably tell us something that would drive us insane, but hey. Hey, we're ready, John. Once you know, a- we're, we're like the skunk at the garden party. <laughs> Every few weeks is good for me. I hope to talk to you soon, Adam. Thanks. <laughs> Sounds good. Thank you. All right. That's Adam and Gievsky. You can check out what they're doing at uh, OpenTheBooks.com. Hey, if you were listening at the top of the show, you heard the recording of the chairman of the Arizona Republican Party offering Carrie Lake big money to drop out of the Senate race out there. Sure sounded like there were swamp creatures involved somehow. And speaking of swamp creatures, J. Michael Waller has written a book called Big Intel, How the CIA and the FBI Went from Cold War Heroes to Deep State Villains. He joins us now. Michael, thanks for coming on. Hey, John. So um, your book uh, is about what the CIA and the FBI used to be uh, and what they've become. So, So let's start with what they used to be. Well, they used to be a lot of things, but the FBI started out as well with J. Andrew Hoover started out hunting down foreign communists, Marxists, radical socialists and anarchists and deporting them back to Russia. That was his first main job at the Justice Department before he headed the Bureau of Investigation. So he began when he when he built what became the FBI, it was to hunt down foreign subversives and get them out of our country before they could infiltrate. And that's well, how- what had happened. <laughs> Sorry. No, go ahead. Sorry. Well, no, what had happened over time, over the next century, is that the the very Soviet-sponsored um, ways of thinking, critical theory, ended up becoming the operating system of the FBI and the CIA. Yeah, so I was reading uh, the, the first couple chapters of your book here, and I... And, um, and I see a lot of mention of the Soviets uh, and Russia and what you just mentioned here. And um, it got me to thinking about McCarthyism. And maybe Joe McCarthy was on to something. Well, he was certainly on to something. In, in fact, uh, all the other evidence that, that came out, you know, much of it substantiates what McCarthy said. Sometimes he, you know, no one's accurate in everything they say, of course, but he was just, just nailed to the wall and destroyed as a human being for going after what was actually true. Now, my old friend Stan Evans, who's passed away, he did, he went to research the original documents that are in the Library of Congress and in the federal, federal archives and found that those documents have been removed from the archives. Can you put your finger on, um, I don't know, a some kind of a ballpark figure any anyway, a ballpark time when it when did it it did begin to change. 
the FBI changed um, really only uh, in the Obama presidency. You know, this, the, we're not looking at faults or mistakes or successes or anything like that. We're just looking at wokeness and the infiltration of wokeness. And that really came uh, in the Obama administration. He issued an executive order in August 2011 to impose all of this on all government agencies. But then he went with a vengeance after the FBI and the CIA and the rest of the intelligence community. Um, you talk a lot about the uh, the Ivy League. What drew the Ivy League elites to the FBI and the CIA? Well, originally they went there because that, that was part of their. It, it was a part of a, a government service, an official service, and they wanted people from. Uh, let's say the State Department was really attracting Ivy Leaguers, so the CIA logically did after World War II when it was set up. So that became a real destination site for people in the Ivy League. And the, one of the interesting things of the Ivy League is these lifelong, multi-generational personal networks you have. It's like a fraternity. Just because you went to that school or just because you're, you're part of the Ivy League overall, you're entitled to be on a first-name basis with any other graduate anywhere in the world. So it was a really handy network to have if you're running intelligence for the United States for the right reasons. So George H.W. Bush, would he be one of those guys? Yes. Uh, and and he sure. was he obviously wasn't the only famous Ivy Leaguer, but uh, and you talk about the network that they've put together. You know, they, everybody talks about the skull and bones and all that. Um, how how um, how how thick is that network? Well, it's, it's the old the old boy network has aged out. Uh, the younger networks now, the, the intelligence community doesn't really. Uh, find the Ivy League as as a as great a source as it was. It goes to good state universities and other private universities. So the networks are different. But before, when it was a very waspy society, it didn't accept Jews. It didn't accept uh, blacks. It was very elitist. It didn't accept Catholics or didn't really welcome them. So it was very elitist and waspy. That has all changed and, and, and pretty much washed out. But it's now the sort of the woke fraternity that has taken its place through the, the proliferation of critical theory ideology through most American universities. What is the Frankfurt School? So the Frankfurt School was a school that was set up uh, as a direct result of a meeting in Moscow in 1922. It, it emerged as a part of a Soviet covert operation to destabilize Europe. And they were starting with Germany after World War One and before the rise of Hitler to to have Germany attack itself, not through economic means like the poor against the rich, but to attack German culture, everything about it, you know, pride of being German, the very strong military culture they had, the deep uh, Catholic and Lutheran cultures that it had, the Jewish heritage of Germany, um, family life in Germany, all these traditions were to be destroyed through relentless criticism. This is what critical theory is all about. Well, with the, with the rise, their goal was to collapse the center of Germany and then have the communists take over Germany. Problem was that Hitler uh, beat them to it. So they fled to other places in Europe and to the United States. And it was a Soviet military intelligence agent who negotiated with Columbia University in New York to transfer the Frankfurt School faculty from Europe to New York take over the teacher's college there, line up with the National Education Association leader at the time. This was a, this was in the in the 30s, okay? And push critical theory, in the words of the Soviet organizer, to make America stink. 
So these people were avowed communists, and they were they they transferred all their stuff from over there in Europe right into Columbia Columbia University. Right into Columbia University, and from there went into. And now think of this as happening in the 1930s. World War II is about to happen. The United States doesn't have a foreign intelligence service. We need linguists. We need people who know the area, who have their own networks back in the home country. So what happens? While Bill Donovan comes in, great man, sets up the Office of Strategic Services and ends on this hiring spree and hires all of these talented people, a lot of whom are Soviet agents and communist agents. But he was only interested in fighting the Nazis, so it wasn't that important to him. But they became at the very core of American foreign intelligence. Uh, to, to what extent? If, are you talking about being at the core? Are we talking yeah. about you know, everywhere you look, there's a communist? They, well, it depends on what office you are. But at the office yeah. of, of the research office of the, the uh, OSS was full of them. Uh, there have been about uh, 100 of them documented. And that's just from, from either defector or deserter accounts or from decryptions of uh, Soviet intelligence it's only a fraction of what was decrypted. So are these people who are walking around with Russian or other foreign accents, or are they Americans from Indiana? Well, they started out as Germans mainly, okay. uh, Germans, Austrians, um, uh, for the most part, and then they came over, and then so they were German anti-fascists, so they were good guys, but you know, nobody really thought they were German communist agents of Stalin. But they broke with Stalin for the most part because of just, he was purging all the time, and he was even purging abroad. So they said, "Look, we're, we're different. We're not bureaucrats. So we want to we want to infuse um, Freudian um, free sex with drugs and alcohol use, and and just have a really good time doing this revolution and change the whole culture that way and make it fun and cool." And that was sort of the rise of what became the new left. So one of these old common turn Soviet assets. Um, his name was Herbert Marcuse, ended up becoming one of the lead theoreticians of what became the new left of the 1960s. Hippies. Yeah, but even the weather underground, the, the, mm -hmm. the intellectual, say the intellectual hippies, for, for lack of a better term. So the people who would go on to become high school teachers and college professors and uh, lawyers and, and, and teachers. That's, that new left generation. That's where we are now. Because those We can thank those people, I guess. Yeah, well, absolutely, and it was they, so we all know critical race theory and, right. and DEI, but there's also before that there was critical law theory, and that was to take American law and not use it with you know your rules of evidence and your rules of procedure and due process and so forth. It was to weaponize the law to have a revolution through changing case law and changing our society that way. So a lot of these law schools by the by the 1980s, 1990s, most American law schools we're already now fully uh, penetrated by the idea of critical theory, meaning they, they were accepting this as a given, and they would teach how to practice American law that way. Now, you're not going to go very far in corporate law this way, but you'll go very far as a government lawyer, mm -hmm. as a Justice Department lawyer, or as an FBI agent. So these people were brought into our system to weaponize justice and the FBI against the public. And it's working. Uh, we're talking to J. Michael Waller. He's uh, written a book called Big Intel, How the CIA and the FBI Went from Cold War Heroes to Deep State Villains. Uh, reading your the introduction to your book, uh, the first person you make reference to 
and you do it by uh, de- um, describing the face that everybody has seen, uh, the nauseating look on his face, uh, Peter Strzok. Every time I hear his name, I can't think of anything but that face he made. Um, <laughs> he's a guy we remember from Crossfire Hurricane and the Russian hoax. So what does he represent? Why is he uh, uh, a prominent pic- uh, person in your book? Well, I began the book with him, and imagine having to watch the video 20 times in order to narrate how it really worked. Right, right. Uh, it was awful. But right. he was head of counterintelligence for the FBI. He was America's chief spy hunter. And that attitude he had when testifying before Congress is like, we, I am above Congress. I'm above any democratically elected person or entity. I'm a state within a state. And this was his whole view. So the, the biggest uh, counterintelligence operation that we know of that he launched while he was head of counterintelligence was Crossfire Hurricane. And the, the lie that Donald Trump was a Russian tool and a, and a Russian collaborator. Yeah, this is what I talk about here all the time. And maybe you don't have to. It's not necessarily a brilliant observation, maybe. But I, I think sometimes people uh, complicate the reasons or make make it too complicated the reasons that so many people in washington dc and the government hate donald trump and uh, peter strock would be one of those guys his uh, his text messages showed that um but they hate him do they fear him more than they hate him because they know that he now knows what they know and they know that he's going to tell people about it well, yeah, well, what he did, Trump changed the whole narrative of, of America, changed the consciousness of it. And his, his real crime was to say things that nobody else dared say and to be in your face about it. That's what they really feared. Now, now what's, what's happened? He, he, he didn't have a team to get together. He didn't have a real agenda. He didn't have a plan to deal with these. You know, he appointed uh, the CIA to run itself and he appointed Chris Ray to run the FBI and so many other things. He didn't get it when he came in. He was an outsider, but now he knows. So he's more dangerous to them than ever because he's got an agenda that's in the works. Folks at Heritage and some other places, I'm working with some of them, to put together a blueprint of what to do. So my part of the blueprint is actually in big intel. What do you? What does the next president do with the FBI and the CIA? Yeah, that's, that's what I wanted to ask you because, again, I just have this – I just have in my mind this picture of – Donald Trump coming in there, he, he has a lot of great intentions. He wants to fix the country. And, you know, on, on the first day on the job, he starts finding out things that just shock him. He can't believe the stuff that's going on. And, and that's what I wanted to ask you. When do you su- suspect that Donald Trump became aware of all this? And does all this explain why so many people in Washington hate him? As I said, that they fear him more than they hate him. Yeah, I don't know when he really became aware because, you know, when you fire Comey and, and, and you get rid of Strzok and McCabe, at the, the rot at the top of the FBI, all of them committed crimes by politicizing the FBI. It's a crime to do what they did. And they were never, you know, charged with the real crimes they committed while running the bureau. Instead, he just sort of pulled off the top and then inserted Christopher Ray who's really a pretty weak FBI man. He's a go-along-to-get-along millionaire Washington, D.C. lawyer, part of the swamp, the huge law firm network that's, that's embedded with, you know, they make their money out of off the taxpayer and off other, you know, connections with, with the federal government. That's where Chris Ray came from. But he really allowed the woke lunatics inside the FBI, the underlings under Strzok and, and, and the others, and then the new ones coming in from below to to 
they, they, they captured him and then they just made him their messenger and their enforcer. And it's just gotten worse than it ever was under Obama. Finishing up here with uh, J. Michael Waller, the book is Big Intel, How the CIA and the FBI Went from Cold War Heroes to Deep State Villains. Are the people in charge, the people that you're talking about, purposely trying to destroy the country from within, or do they think they have the country's best interests at heart? Do they do they think they're doing good work? Well, you know, they're not incompetent, first of all. They're highly capable, so they know what they're doing. It's just a question of what kind of America do they think they're protecting? And if they're doing what Obama promised to do is to fundamentally transform America, they're doing a great job. Yeah. And and uh, finishing up again, uh, what would you hope that the people would get from reading your book? What what would they learn? Always ask questions from your from your elected leaders, whether you like them or don't like them, or trust them or don't trust them. Always ask a lot of questions, and keep in mind that there there are still good people in the in the system. We need an FBI functions, at least the functions that it has. If not as an FBI, we need to fight spies. We need to fight terrorists. We need to stop human trafficking and so forth. Um, but it can't be politicized. It has to serve the nation again. It can't be this force to wage cultural warfare against us. And it has to believe in American founding principles. And today's FBI does not. Real quick, I, I, I mentioned Carrie Lake at the top here. I don't know if you've seen or heard the, the video, the, the audio tape that, that she made of the director of the um, Arizona Republican Party offering her money to not run for the Senate. And I'm just wondering if that stinks of the deep state. Because she's one of those outsiders they don't like, and she's a, a Trump supporter. Right. If you're an outsider, they're going to hate you. And they're going to say, well, you don't understand how the country works. It's really, you kind of do get what the country works. You don't know the nuts and bolts, but you know what your people in your state believe and want, and you're there to represent them. And I mean, if, if people knew how really how awful it is in D.C., I've lived here for, for more than 40 years in the, in the D.C. area. I've, I've never been part of the machine or part of the swamp. But nine of the richest counties in the United States are in the Washington, D.C. area, which has no industry of its own except central government. So these huge mansions and these people who are making millions and tens of millions or more a year on, on government contracts, which are intelligence contracts and FBI contracts and every other kind you can imagine, they need the system to stay as it is, and they, they, they'll lose their livelihoods if people come in who say drain the swamp and who really mean what they say. So, yeah, you're going to see bribery of people not to run. I was offered a lot of money to stop criticizing the foreign governments of Qatar, the regime, you know, the jihadist regime. They, somebody went to me through a law firm and said, how much will it take for you to shut up? Wow. Hey, hey, I'm out of time, Michael. Thanks for coming on the show. Good luck with the book. Good talking to you, John. Okay, big intel how the CIA and the FBI went from Cold War heroes to deep state villains. Scary stuff. Well, guess who resigned? We played you that uh, audio from uh, this guy DeWitt, who uh, Jeff DeWitt, who was the chairman of the Arizona Republican Party, and it sure sounded like he was offering Carrie Lake money to not run for Senate in Arizona, and she told him uh, there's not enough money they can pay her to get her to drop out, and uh, he is, is heard in the uh, audio saying that, uh, there are people back east, obviously meaning Washington, who really don't want her to go to the Senate. So um, 
today, just not long ago, uh, Jeff DeWitt resigned with a lengthy resignation letter. And guess what he's saying? He was taken out of context and that the recording was a deceptive tactic by Lake. Uh, Lake's campaign says the tape speaks for itself. Uh, DeWitt attempted to bribe her, but um, in his resignation letter, this DeWitt guy acknowledged it was him and claimed Lake released a, quote, selectively edited audio recording of a more than 10-month-old private conversation between the two and that it was, quote, taken out of context. But he resigned. So um, they got him, okay? And uh, it'll be interesting to see where this guy goes from here and uh, whether the uh, Lake campaign, you would think that before they made this audio public, that they were pretty sure what this guy DeWitt's reaction was going to be. And so they're pushing back and saying it was an attempted bribe, but they're also, you figure they got to have something up their sleeve to counter all this, and you'll be hearing that sometime soon. So that's the name of that story, and I'm out of time. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.